Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. John Burns, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. Hey, great. We're so excited and pleased you could be here, share your knowledge and your experience. Um, you know, for those who know you, we all know that you're very highly regarded in the industry, uh, wealth of knowledge, tremendous following within your your client base and your business and the industry and and social media too. I think you have a pretty strong presence on on LinkedIn. And so um, all that together and your, as I said, your knowledge and experience, we're really looking forward to a great conversation with you. Well, I'll try not to disprove that. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. That's John Burns from John Burns Real Estate Consulting. John started his company in 2001 to provide independent research and consulting services related to the U.S. housing industry. Then in 2016, John wrote a book called Big Ships Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses. We'll talk to John about his view of the current housing market and where it might be headed. We'll also dive into his book and have him explain some of the concepts and walk us through some of the learnings and implications. And at the end, John will take our building science quiz and give us his view of how long he thinks a house shall last. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. Um, so let's talk about your background a little bit for those folks maybe who don't know you so well. Um, you know, what, what's your educational background and then how did you get into the building products business? Uh, somewhat accidentally. So I, I got a degree from Stanford. My father was a CPA. He said, go be a CPA. So I did that for a couple of years. And then I went back to grad school at UCLA, met my wife, moved to Southern California and joined a consulting firm. And I was there for three months and they reorganized by industry. My boss picked real estate. So I ended up as a real estate consultant in 1989 with no passion for real estate. Just that that was really? what happened. And then, um, Got a great education during the 90s through the whole SNL debacle, uh, helping my clients uh, and a lot of financial clients work through that. Saw the commercial real estate industry being more sophisticated than the residential industry and saw an opportunity to take some of that learnings from the commercial and bring it over to residential. So that's what I did. I started the company uh, 20 years ago, the end of 2001. and. We were the outsourced research department for a lot of companies that can't afford to do all the research we do, and we we charge them less than the cost of a person to do it. And we also have a very large consulting practice that helps people with specific decisions they want to make, which is very complimentary. And so I'm very fortunate to have a team of about 110 people now and a really great company, really great coworkers. So you so your experience in the 90s anyway was commercial segment? Primarily? It was everything residential. It was it was everything. Uh, okay. Everything everything blew up when the S with the SNL debacle, um, but the residential industry got hit a lot harder, partially because they were frankly I don't want to diss them, but more like doing deals on the back of a napkin, not paying attention to their balance sheets, not not monitoring the risk. And I'm not talking about the building products company. I'm talking about the yeah. the builders and and the people in that industry themselves. Um, and I just said, you know, I don't want to see this happen to them. Again. <laughs> uh, and they, they couldn't afford to have a big research department like the commercial real estate companies could, did. And I said, I'll, I'll be that department and I'll just car charge you a fraction of it. And that, that's how it's played out. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. So just to clean up, I, I did say building products company, but I meant residential construction uh, right. industry, right? So it was where your focus is. Uh, among other things, building, you have members like us, you know, clients like us are building product manufacturers. Well, that, yeah, to, to that point, um, we picked up Kohler as a client quite a while ago, and Todd Tomalak, uh, who was our client there, eventually joined us and has built out our product, our, our business for building products, because he said, John, there's a huge opportunity here, and you got to include repair and remodeling into this, and he's he's really taken us to the next level. So we've been doing building products for about a decade, but big time under Todd for about six years. Yeah, he does a great job for you. Thank you. Um, your client base is pretty varied, right? I mean, you mentioned builders. And then could you expand on that a little bit? Because it's it's really, like, of all the folks in the residential industry, it's pretty broad, pretty varied. Yeah, and I, I've done that by design because I don't, I, I mean, in 2008, it was not the best time to have all your clients as home builders. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, we have a lot of private equity clients. That's actually probably about a third of our business. Some of them are buying companies. A lot of them are just investing in deals. We have uh, hedge funds that trade securities. We, uh, building products is maybe about 17% of our business now. Um, a lot of these disruptors that you're reading about, these, these unicorns, yeah. they're clients as well. The single family rental business fell into our lap about 10 years ago and that's become a big part of our business too. And I just sit right in the middle of all these smart people and listen and answer questions and try to pull it all together. It's really, I love my job. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah, that we'll, I want to talk about the disruptors in, in a little bit. The um, <clears throat> are the land developers clearly the craziest of your client base? Are they who who would be the craziest uh, category, or is it cross oh, def all? Definitely the disruptors. I mean, I've got the disruptors. I've got, oh, well, high risk guys. Yeah, they're they're being valued at, at ten to twenty times their revenue, Alan. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I mean that's a pretty risky investment, if you ask me. Um, the land developers, as you're alluding to, take a ton of risk, but they've been behaving with a ton of discipline, which is actually kind of costing the industry a lot of supply because there's not a lot of entitled lots ready to build on right now because right? they've been so darn disciplined. So they are being disciplined. Yeah. And yeah. What do you, where do you think that's coming from? Just their past recent experience or the last downturn? Or? Yeah, the the equity partners of the past um, have learned their lesson and you know, if you're if you're going to put equity in a big land deal, you got to be prepared to have that equity in there for 10 to 20 years if things don't go as you want. And frankly, there's not a lot of investment funds with that type of patience. So you find a lot of uh, affluent people like uh, Ross Perot owns one in Texas and Don Bren owns one in here in California and um, very local affluent people that think generationally, but it's limited to those people for the most part. Hmm. Okay. And you, I don't know if you mentioned, but you got your undergraduate degree from Stanford and your and your graduate your MBA from UCLA. Yes. Right. Or do you consider your, do you root for the Cardinal more than the Bruins or where, where's your oh, college sports allegiance lie? hundred percent the Cardinal. All, there you all, go. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good deal. Um, we wanted to, that, you know, the, we're asking the questions that the audience wants to know here, <laughs> or, or maybe at least me. It's been um, a tough, tough football year this year too. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> right. Even uh, at that. Yeah, I'm a Penn State fan, so tell me about it. We rose right, as high so you, as four. You and I and both and, hate. You and I both hate Jim Harbaugh. So exactly. Right. <laughs> right. This this one may not play big in Michigan. I'm just guessing. <laughs> so, okay. So you had 20 years in the John Burns Real Estate Consulting Company, and then. 
about five years ago, you decided to write a book, become an author. That was your first book, only book? Uh, first and probably last, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to be my other question. Would you do it again? Um, it was a great business decision, uh, but it, it it took three years of my nights and weekends. So yeah. it was pretty painful at home, frankly. Uh, yeah. And my wife is the most patient person in the world, and she put up with that. But that, if I look back on it again, I'm I'm a workaholic. But that was probably too much. Yeah, I was going to ask you what was your writing process? You're you're working at nights, weekends. working at nights and weekends. But I I co-authored it with our chief demographer Chris Porter, so he was getting a lot of it done during the week. And we had three interns at the time. All three have become full-time employees and are still here with us. Um, wow. So that we we had a lot of data collection that went into it that really teed everything up for me to write. Yeah, cool. Well, let's dig into the book. So the, for those listening, the book is called Big Shifts Ahead, Demographic Clarity for Businesses. Um, so I guess first question was why write the book? What what was the need you saw? That What was the message you wanted to send? Uh, demographics was, first of all, it's destiny, right? That's the buzzword. But um, there were so many sound bites that were so confusing and so misleading, and um, I needed to make sense of it for myself, frankly. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so we started to make sense of it for ourselves. Uh, and I knew there'd be demand for somebody to bring clarity to this. And uh, you know that's why we did it. And, and frankly, we're still using it. It's still, even though it's five years old, it, it's amazingly relevant and has been awesome to provide clarity for our clients. So I'm really glad I did it for that reason. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna ask like at what point, <clears throat> I guess it's obvious maybe when it becomes not so on point and you may need to refresh it with a version two, but right. clearly five years in, it's still still valid. I'm not sure what the right word there is valid. It's still, still on point, still relevant. Oh, completely. Uh, you know, we broke the generations down into the decade born. So the only difference is everybody's five years older. <laughs> okay. But we documented we documented how that was going to play out. It, it played out almost perfectly. We we said we'd need 1.37 million housing units per year over the next 10 years, and for the first five years we had 1.35. So it was yeah. almost a bullseye. Uh, but it it we we're refreshing it, but not republishing right now, Alan, because when we wrote it. The market was uh, oversupplied by about a million three homes, so that dragged down that number. Now the market is undersupplied by about the same number, maybe a little bit more than that. So we're we're far more bullish over the next ten years, just because of the undersupply situation. But the demographics is still spot on. Hmm. Okay, and yeah, that was one of your frameworks, the demographics by decade, okay. right? Um, <clears throat> and that. How'd you come up with that 10 years? Like, I guess you couldn't do every year, obviously. You, you can cut it too close, too granularly. 10 well, is we, about right? Um, well, we started in five years increments, and I just thought it was too much. Um, as we studied the history of the uh, market, it was just amazing to me. How, even if you were born in like the early 80s versus the late 80s, there was a pretty big difference. So, and, and all these government policies that happened and how the economy, you know, if the economy was hot when you graduated from college or in a recession when you graduated from college, frankly, all impact your ability to earn money and when you formed a household and when you bought a home. And, um, you know, I'm a consultant, so I like to make charts and things look easy to understand. And 
millennials were nobody even had a consistent definition of when it's ended and when it stopped and they were comparing generations that were 17 years in size versus 19 it was apples and oranges i just said we all know what year we're born let's do it by decade we're not going to argue whether i'm a millennial or gen x yeah <laughs> and um we can compare 10-year periods to 10-year periods and it made the analysis for business people so much easier and for us so much easier to to understand um, we're still using it. Oh, I'm speaking on it tomorrow morning. <laughs> huh. Yeah, because I know that I'm, I was born in the last year, the baby boom, 64. Yep. Mm -hmm. But I feel nothing in common with somebody born in 1945, 46. Right. That's a huge span. So you chop that up into three, really three different groups. Yeah. So th those born in the 40s were, um, well, for the, the born in the 30s, they were we called them the savers because they were so imp impacted by the Great Depression. It was interesting to me how much what happened in your childhood impacted your adulthood. So the, the 1930s, we called the savers because they grew up in the Great Depression. I mean, it's the Warren Buffett era. Yep. But the early boomers, the 1940s, totally different. They were all about getting ahead financially. They led the uh, dual income household boom, if you will. They were right in the middle of the boom of divorces too, uh, hmm. which impacted their kids. They're born 25, 30 years later. Um, and so much of the sound bites I was getting about these millennials, they're forming households later, da, da, da. When I went back and looked at it, it was like, actually what happened is the boomers were, early boomers were super unique. <laughs> they yeah. were the ones that got out of the house as soon as they possibly could. They were the ones that uh, went to the dual income households and, Frankly, their kids were behaving more like their parents than like them. The only the only difference is the kids were getting married and having kids five years later. That, later that was really yeah. the main difference. Yeah, I was surprised to see that that the <clears throat> the boomers uh, drove the dual income. I guess I would have thought that would have been more from the si folks in the '60s. You talk, call them the equalers, right? Driving women into the uh, workforce um, and so forth. Yeah, and th that. It was the early boomers um, in the equalers. You're right. We we did say that was the heart of it. So Title IX, talk about government policy. Title IX in 1972 completely changed the game to make um, you know equal oppor education opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, those women were seeing in record numbers their mom get who had, didn't go to college get divorced, and saying, and my wife told me this before we got married, like I'm not going to let that happen to me. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and at the time, I think 42% of um, degrees were going to women. Um, today, it's 42% of degrees going to men. It's completely huh. reversed. Slip. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And the and, and those born in the 50s are, one, are the wealth. They carry a lot of wealth, right? Yeah. Do I have that right? Talk, and there's been a lot of demographic research on them. This is uh, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Scott McNeely. Um, born in the 50s, the PC and the tech era came about in the 70s. They jumped on that. I mean, they talk about they were early disruptors with technology, huge innovators, super competitive because there were more people born in the 50s than any other decade before. And the schools were crowded. They were just a super competitive group. Uh, they changed the game dramatically as well that way. Hmm. Yeah. There's a great, you probably read it and I'm probably going to mess it up, but I think Malcolm Gladwell in one of his books talks about being born, you know, 
how much yeah. wealth has been created in the world. And it's almost like within like a few years of certain dates, right? When the guys you just mentioned in technology, it's, you know, we're born within a year or two of each other. Same thing with the- Yeah, right. 1956. In, in, yeah. 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 That's that tremendous. That was the lucky year to be born. <laughs> and you go back to the Carnegies and the Mellons, and that's like, they're all born with, right? They take advantage of the societal shifts and technology and so forth. It It's true. And if I could just fast forward to those born in the 70s, it's the exact opposite story. Um, you know, they, they were, talk about housing, that was the group that was in their late 20s, early 30s, forming households, buying their first home right when the great financial crisis hit. So that, that that group just got, I call them the foreclosure generation. Um, huh. and, it, and it was purely the luck of the, uh, when they were born, that they had to go through that. Yeah. You know, frankly, it feels a little bit similar today. You hear the stories of, of the 20-somethings, you know, bidding 20% over asking on home prices right now. It, it was the same story for that group back in the early 2000s. Huh. And then, so the, seven, so the nickname you gave the 70s generation was? The, was... was the balancers because they, they, they changed the definition of success. Their parents was about making a lot of money. For them, it was about making money, but also having some balance at home. Okay. Um, and you know you probably read a lot about people observe what their parents do and and try to behave differently. <laughs> that that was the, they saw their workaholic parents and they said I'm not you know that's life is not going to be me. Yeah, it's yeah. not all about work for me. Yeah. And in the 80s, the nickname you gave the 80s were. So they they are a lot like the 50s. They got lucky because they were born right when the internet. They came of age right when the internet took off. Okay. So I, we call them the sharers because they uh, developed the sharing economy. And if you look at who started Airbnb, who started Rent the Runway, who started all Facebook, I mean, all these guys, they were all born in the 1980s, this sharing economy, sharing what I'm doing on social media um, was that group. Interesting. And then, and then the 90s? So, and these are my kids now. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, born a year older too, than yeah. you. Um, we called them the connectors because the big impact on them was cell phones and they were staying connected to their friends, their parents, what's going on in the world, um, you know, and some some pros and definitely some cons associated with that. And these and these nicknames, I, I guess I failed to mention, these are the um, these are the shifts that they led or, or they were led by they were impacted by the shifts. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, it's. We, we gave them the nickname with what, what was the impact they made on society or what was the shift that they led? Yes. Yeah. And then, so I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Alan. So, yeah. So the two thousands then that, that group is not, that's That's more of a forward. That's an anticipation, right? I don't, I forget what nickname yeah. you gave them, but that's, that's to come yet. Right. Right. And we, we weren't sure we called them at the time, the globals, because all the information of flow is going to make them more globally aware seems to be playing out pretty well with their emphasis on the environment and climate and what's going on around the world. And and also, um, I've neglected to mention that those, that group born in the 1970s, that was the baby bust, if you will, but there was a huge immigration of people born in the 70s who came here in the 80s and 90s. Um, and so their kids were very multicultural. And so the people in, in the grew up in the 2000s grew up with a lot of kids who's from different cultures. And so that that was part of our thesis, calling them the globals as well. Ah, okay. So then, okay, so 
deep dive on the demographics. That's really, I mean, that's really interesting stuff. That's fascinating. Um, and then you also define there's four big influencers. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about those and how that Im may impact the housing market as well? Yeah, I'll poke fun at consultants here for a minute. We all try to boil things down into three. This time I had to do it in four. Yeah, four, but, yeah. But we were looking at all these changes like, God, what what changed and what drove, drove this? Um, home ownership in America was in the 40s from 1900 through 1950. And then the GI Bill in, in 46 or 47 is what pushed home ownership up into the 60s. So, so that, that was a government-led massive change in the industry. Mm -hmm. Social Security, which came into playing in the 1930s, allowed people later in life to live alone. That's the rise of assisted living facilities. Um, I mean, people don't realize this, but we we had 2.7 adults per household on average because people's grandparents lived with them until Social Security kicked in for a group that had been working for decades and they could go to assisted living facilities. Now, now we only have two. Um, so government and I could go on and on about government changes. Um, I already mentioned Title IX. The second one was economy. So clearly that matters. I think we all get that, but and we already talked about that, but the, the, the particularly the timing when you graduate from school, how healthy the economy is, makes a big difference in how you get started in your career and really impacts home ownership and, and home buying and all sorts of things huh. for decades. Yeah. Technology was the third. Uh, the air conditioner allowed all the migration south. You know, the mass-produced cars gave rise to the suburbs in the 50s and 60s. That would have not been the case if we hadn't had that. Uh, probably the biggest change um, was that the birth control pill was approved in 1960, 1961. And that's why you and I were at the tail end of the baby boom, because all of a sudden now women could control their fertility more. Hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a huge technology that, that led that. And then the fourth would be societal shifts, which is kind of a catch-all. I already talked about one, you know, living multi-generationally with your grandparents to not early baby boomers not wanting to live with their parents at all. And then a shifting back more recently to multi-generational living, the rise in divorce rates we talked about, having fewer kids today, the rise in dual income households. Um, all of these are choices that people made. So we, we called them society shifts, societal shifts. And there's some interdependence between sure. all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, between all yeah, these I mean, things. All, yeah. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, all these things yeah. happen together. Right. Right. And then you also have something in the book called the 456 rule. Uh, um, I'm thinking that's more of a process versus d discovery well, or... It, it's it's the tool I use, and I, th this is, I think, probably the biggest value add for business people, is, you know, people sit around and talk about demographics and millennial generalization, this, this, and this. But if you get the exact math by decade born, which is what we just talked about, and then somebody says, well, John, what, what's happening with uh, work from home or whatever the societal shift is, you got to look at it. Uh, so that's a I guess that's a technology-enabled shift, maybe a societal shift. You got to look at it in, um, well, how is it impacting each age differently? So we called the the four, five, six rule. The four is the big influencers, 
four influencers we just talked about, government, economy, technology, and societal shifts. So if you want to talk about work from home, let's just isolate that. The five is the five life stages. Well, how is that impacting children? How is that impacting people early in their career? How is that impacting people with kids? How is that impacting people who are empty nesters? How is that impacting people in retirement? It's all impacting them differently. Mm -hmm. And I found with our clients, everybody was throwing them all into one bucket and saying, here's what's going on. Um, it just made it so much more clear to get to the six, which is whatever business question you're deciding to answer. Who Who's going to buy my product? What are they going to buy? Why, where, when, and how? That's the four, five, six rule. Okay. So that, yeah. So then you go through and kind of analyze each of those situations yeah. and then, or- right or follow a particular thread depending on the question. Exactly. Yeah, no, exactly. And, cool. and, and it, that that's what's helped me as all these things change <laughs> to articulate for our clients. Well, let's break this out by life stage, for example. I'm like, oh, yeah. you know, that, that's it. That is how we should break it out, John. I totally get it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the marketing, it's, it's, it's a form of segmentation, right? Totally. It's exactly, exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. And then that leads to any number of opportunities. I think you've identified either four or seven in your book, uh, fairly significant opportunities, right? As you sure. run this stuff into the blender and kind of process it and a lot of smart people around the table thinking about it. What, yeah. what are the, what are those opportunities? Um, well, one we identified in the book was just to go after affluent, busy working women. <laughs> Thanks to Title IX and the rise in dual income households. And think of all the businesses that are targeted at more affluent, busy working women and how well they've done. Yeah. Uh, immigration. Uh, immigrants aren't one thing. Uh, you know, we had a lot of low income immigrants coming across the border for a very long time. And then in the last decade, we had a lot of high income immigrants coming here on airplanes and landing on the coasts. Very, very different opportunities to serve each of them. You know what now right now our industry is suffering from a lack of the low lower income immigrants coming south of the border to work in construction because mm -hmm. that frankly that has not been going on for the for the last two decades really in, in big ways um this is an obvious one but but the earliest baby boomer born in 1946 they're what 75 this year so the, re the boom in retirees, we're going to see a 38% increase in retirees over the next 10 years. I mean, what does that mean for remodeling? That's yeah. a huge, huge yeah. opportunity for remodeling. Um, you know, young adults, th that's very relevant right now. The biggest five-year grouping out there right now is 28 to 32-year-olds, which for this generation, that's exactly when you buy your first home. So this this whole thing is 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 occurring with the low interest rates and the stimulus and everything else, right at the time where we have a surge in people in home buying years. That's temporary, but it's there. Yeah, but didn't your research show that some folks are putting that decision off four or five years? Yeah. Or, is, no, or is, the, does it push them into that range, or does it push them out of that? Uh, well, good good point. So their parents, I would have said the prime home buying years was twenty three to twenty seven. Uh, Okay. Okay. <laughs> For them, it's twenty-eight to thirty-two. So you're you're spot on. Gotcha. Okay. Great. And then um, you also talk. We'll just I guess we'll just finish up on the book here before we talk about today's market a little bit more. Um, you also talk about um, big uh, shifts in living preferences. You know, can you can you describe what some of these shifts are and maybe why they're important to, to the to the industry? 
if I had a dollar for every home builder that told me everybody wants to buy a home that's the American dream, and a dollar for every of one of my rental clients that said <laughs> people don't want to own anymore, they want to rent, I'd be a right? rich person, right? <laughs> Um, and going back to your comment on segmentation, Alan, with certain groups of people, they're both right. So um, we we really handled the rental thing uh, pretty well. Uh, I think probably the biggest change was a societal shift, which baby boomers, and I, this is a, an opinion, but it was, um, the big brag was, hey, look at my nice big house. That was the era of McMansions. Yeah. Just to, this generation's big brag is, hey, look what I'm doing. I'm posting my activities and experiences. It's not about home ownership for them. It's it's different. They, I mean, they will lease everything. Hmm. Um, now, they're getting some massive rent hikes this year, so I think they're going to want to own a home after a couple of years of that. Uh, but that's a, that's a good example right there of a big shift. Towards rentals. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people are moving south too. I mean, everybody wants to live in the south now because it's warm and it's affordable, and um, the the economies there, particularly Texas, are very and Tennessee are very welcoming to businesses. So there's a lot of job growth. Forty-two percent of America lives in the south as we define it, but sixty-two percent of our growth is there. That's oh, wow. a big. That's a that's big huge. shift, particularly for a lot of. Uh, mature building materials companies that um, are in the Midwest and used to products that work in the Midwest. It's a different product in the South in a lot of cases. Yeah, we're experiencing a fair bit of growth in the desert Southwest of all places. <clears throat> One, just because the numbers are so strong. Right. Um, but you're right, as a building practice, that part of the world builds so much different. I mean, they don't even put sheathing on the walls and maybe even yeah. California too, versus the Northeast or the Midwest or, you know. It's completely different materials dri driven mostly by the weather. Yeah. And then, um, so neither one, rentals, the, the drive south, like those are big shifts, changes. They're, they're not going to turn around in a year or two, right? I, mean, I, I don't think so. You know, I've had some clients who are very forward thinking that think global warming may push people back up north because it'll just get too hot in Houston someday. But I, I haven't concluded on that one yet. Right, right. <laughs> And then you talk about a third shift of folks moving more suburban or what you. Yeah. Away from the cities? And, and I think this is changing a bit now. So um, traffic has just gotten worse and worse and worse for decades, right? Uh, but the millennial generation that was getting married later and having kids later migrated to the urban areas because they didn't need good schools. There was a lot of lot to do there. I'm willing to pay more money and rent. But as soon as they started having kids, they said, you know what, I need to go someplace more affordable. But a detached home that I could afford might be an hour and a half from work. So they, they go to the suburbs, um, but they're very comfortable with a higher density suburban living. So we had seen a boom in what we called suburban, which was bringing the best of urban living to the suburbs. So it was kind of a higher density suburban living, but it had good schools, it had low crime, it was relatively affordable because you weren't getting a big yard. That has been the big trend led by the younger adults. 
now work from home, I think, is giving some of those people the opportunity to go buy that house an hour and a half from work because yeah. I only have to come in three days a week. Even further um, out, yeah. Yeah, so that and that and we're seeing that play out big time right now. Well, that's good because I live in one of those houses far out, so okay. <laughs> that's my value. <laughs> there you go. And to the rental point, my 25-year-old daughter does like living in the McMansion. You know, I think she likes that versus the rental, but uh, I hear, I know what you mean. <laughs> so so does my 24-year-old son. So we're, right. we're on the same path there. <laughs> That's funny. Well, cool. Well, I, I um, yeah, I appreciate the deep dive on the book. Um, I encourage any of the listeners to go pick up a copy. I think they can order it. I think I ordered mine from your website or Amazon. I'm not sure. Yeah, you can remember. get it on it. You can get it on Amazon. Um, you get was it 7,000 hours of research for 20 bucks? I think it's a pretty good there deal. There you go. Yeah, uh, it's a good <laughs> deal. And uh, I read it. I uh, Obviously, I went back through it again in, in preparation for this um, for this discussion. But uh, yeah, it's really, it's a it's a good read, as they say. So well done. Thank I want to talk a little bit about the, um, the current market today, uh, if we could. And um, so, you know, the big question is, where are, how would you describe the current market? Where are we? Um, before we go to where are we going, but kind of where are we today is snapshot. Almost a year ago, last February, we started calling this the high risk, high reward part of the cycle. Uh, you know, people wanted to start using the bubble word. And um, you know, if you go back and look at past cycles, there were there usually are years where you could say we were in a bubble, but they were the years where people made a ton of money. And then mm. and then and then if they weren't careful, I had to give it all back. <laughs> um, that's where I feel we are in this. I think we're we're towards the end of a cycle, and I have no idea when it's going to turn. Um, but this is the time where we all can do really, really, really well because demand is so much more than supply. Uh, everybody's raising price and benefiting from it. Yeah. But it, it, it's at some point, you know, this is all driven by the strength of the economy and low mortgage rates. And I'll, I'll throw into that high, very, very high asset values. I mean, we have the highest stock market value, the highest home prices and the highest bond prices ever all going on at the same time right now. That's a pretty good stimulus for us. Yeah. At some point, I don't think that'll be true anymore. And that's when we better have a lot of cash in the bank, but I don't know when that will be. Is the industry versus the last, you know, the financial crisis in 2008 timeframe, are, are the companies healthier than they were? Could we Wait, survive? The, the companies that have been around for 20 years or more, I don't think have ever been healthier. Yeah. They're, they've got more cash in the bank than ever. They've got less debt than ever. Every, the industry has been so disciplined, it's unbelievable. Now, I do see a lot of venture capital type money and other thing taking huge risks coming in too um so i don't i don't say nobody's going to get burned here but i i think the mature businesses are managing this very well and although dodd frank was a very painful regulation for the industry it has made the mortgage industry extremely pristine this cycle which is helping us quite a bit from that standpoint yeah i've been helping my parents move they're buying a house, building a house and buying a house in um, Virginia. And so it's interesting. They're in their eighties. They're going to get yeah. a 30 year mortgage, but yeah. I've, I've done all the financial and the, the process is quite detailed. You know, they wanted 
they wanted deposit slips. I think of my dad's, uh, you know, of, of pen, uh, I, no, they wanted details on the state. Uh, he's a teacher. So they want details on the pension income, which isn't much. Um, but just, I, I couldn't, I'm like, well, he's claimed it on his taxes for the last 40 years. Like people don't do that unless it's real, <laughs> but they, they wanted to have ex that extra evidence. So I, I understand what you're saying. That process is much more rigorous than it was in the past. Oh, it, the, the paperwork is unbelievable. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier this this idea of 1.37 million homes is kind of the the, the ideal. Uh, what uh, would that be starts or that's household formation rate? No, that was that was total construction. Total um, construction on an average per year from 2016 to 2025. Um, we had to build through some excess, but we've done that now. So we're we're more optimistic now. We think it's closer to 1.6 million from here on going forward. Okay. So 1.6, if we were to build that, we would be in balance. Yeah. And, and this year we're going to do, this year we're going to do 1.7 and, and it's going to look like we didn't build enough because of the huge demand surge this year. Um, and I do think that is right. We didn't, we, we could have sold 2 million homes or built and sold at least 2 million homes easily this year, but that's not sustainable. If you look at our, at our demographics, um, that's more of a 2021 story and, and probably a 2022 and 2023 story as well. Um, but at some point we're going to wake up and realize, you know, we're not growing like we used to. We don't need as many homes built every year as we did before. And, and that's where that lower number of about 1.4 million comes into play demographically. Okay. And how does, um, in terms of, where does affordability play right now? Uh, and how's that going to impact us going forward? Yeah, we we have a view on this by market. We think most markets have become permanently more expensive. So this is just not a reversion to the mean call. But uh, we think the market nationally is about 9% overpriced right now. 9%. Uh, and, yeah, and we look, we look at the payment to determine that, not the price, because most people are payment oriented. And we think that the payment to income ratio is about 9% higher than it should be. But what is so interesting right now is with this work from home shift, people are moving to a more affordable area and the place they're moving to, they can afford easily. So yeah. it's not, it's not the people who are buying homes or even renting homes are not struggling to qualify. If you'll indulge me for a minute, I'll just tell the story of Austin, Texas, which is the poster child for this. In Austin, Texas, home prices are up 40% in the last year. Wow. And, and the debt to income ratios are among the lowest in the country because the buyers are coming from California. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they're actually buying, I, I've got this data from uh, AEI, one of the groups we work with, they're buying 30% more house on a 50% larger lot and paying less. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one day, you're, one day the stock market's going to correct or something and that California migration is going to slow and you're going to be stuck selling homes and leasing homes to school teachers in Austin. That's not pretty. Right. So um, we look more at the Austin incomes over the long term to make that call on whether or not it's overpriced. Okay, yeah. So, uh, and you mentioned um, remote work. So obviously that, has the potential to allow people to go a little further out and then maybe fight that affordability problem, right? Get into a more this, affordable house. 
This is a massive societal game changer, the way building freeways and mass-produced cars created subways in the 50s. I think that this has opened the door to professional workers who can work from home, all the way from executives down to people who work at call centers to live wherever the heck they want. Yeah. And, and if, you, if you've got a job where you have to come in every day that doesn't work for you, uh, if you've got a job where they'll let you come in two days a week, you got to stay in the same area. But if you've got a job where you don't even need that, you can go wherever the heck you want. And uh, we're that's exactly what we're seeing with this great resignation. People are moving and they're, they're going to these where maybe where they grew up or someplace really beautiful like Boise, Idaho, has seen a huge boom um, of people out of Northern California and out of Seattle. And they can get so much more for their money there. Uh, I mean, I picked up an, empo- an employee in Boise, too, who used to work in California. She couldn't be happier and we couldn't be more thrilled. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So the great, the interesting thing, the great resignation, it's somebody's resignation, but it's also somebody's gain. Right? That's the point here. Oh, it has been our we, when this started last April, April 2020, we we formally announced in PowerPoint at our company meeting, we're going on offense hiring here huh. because our we can we can make that work. And we, the quality of resumes and the quality of people we've got is unprecedented. Wow. Uh, so thank you very much, all you other companies who are treating <laughs> people that way. <laughs> right. Let's talk about the rental home craze a little bit. Um, how big is the rental home market today? Wow. Um, do, you know, do you know with yes. any exact? Yes. Yeah. Uh, sadly, I, I happen to know all these numbers off the top of my head. So. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's about 30 million um, apartment people who households that rent apartments, and about 15 million households that rent homes. So it's about 45 million renters. Okay. Uh, and the reason I put that in perspective is that um, we had net we've been building apartment communities for for all those people forever. We have not been building single family rental communities. For all those people forever. And that and that that population is half the size of the apartment market. So if you say we should build 400,000 apartments a year, which is the normal apartment construction, if there's half as many single family renters, you could simply conclude we should be building 200,000 single family rental. Uh, um, and according to the Census Bureau data, we're building about 55,000. Um, huh. Okay. I, th- I think there's actually more than that that's understating the number. But there's a huge opportunity here that people didn't really think existed because it was just going to be too hard to do something like that and too time consuming. And the capital expense on a house is so much different than an apartment. But Blackstone and American Homes for Rent and Tricon and, and all the and Pretium all proved during the downturn that they could manage homes scattered all over the metro area. So we know very confidently you can do it if you if you put them all together. Yeah. (laughs) And and they all have the same appliances and and everything else. So that yeah, that 15 million in single in detached, that's mostly existing that got. It's mostly existing. Yeah. Yeah. And and just just three million of it is condos. So three million of it's technically attached, but but 12 million of it is detached. And um, it's been an ignored part of the market and the apartment people and and including a a lot of people listening to this just don't get it. Um, 
it's a different tenant. It's somebody with a dog and kids or you know, um, just doesn't want to be sharing walls or uh, having somebody, you know, walk on their ceiling. People with a lot of stuff. You talk about your parents buying a home. I, I hear a lot of people like that selling their home and moving to a rental community because they need the cash. <laughs> but they've got, you know, 50 years worth of Christmas decorations to put <laughs> right. somewhere. So they, they need a house, not an apartment. <laughs> right, right. That's that's a huge part of America, 15 million households. Yeah, that's and, we've, huge. and we've never we've never given them something new to rent for the most part. And we've always told them if you've got to rent, you can't rent from a professional company. You got to rent from Joe Blow. And your neighbor, the homeowner, is going to look down on you because you're the deadbeat renter in the neighborhood. Uh, that's the problem we're solving right now. And it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. And I believe I've heard you talk about it's an opportunity in the R&R &R space. So the, the, the investors oh. that are buying these existing properties, in some cases, need to retrofit them. And just the numbers drive you, drive an R&R &R opportunity. Is that right? Yes. So everybody's heard the term fix and flip, um, but but now it's kind of fixed. There's a big fix and rent. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, what is going on in the world right now is it's so hard to find yield anywhere in the bond market that a lot of money has shifted into rental income, particularly because there is, this is an inflation hedge too. If we have inflation and wages go up, you can raise rent. So it's an inflation hedge. Sure. Um, we're seeing a lot of money rotate into this. And if if you're a landlord in a house, you want more durable mater, uh, materials so your tenants don't trash them. And when they leave, you can turn it over more quickly. So it's, it's actually a higher quality fix and flip, if you will, in many instances, than, than something intent to be sold, believe it or not. Yeah. Now you're speaking our language now. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> That's great. How about uh, changing gears a little bit, um, the role of offsite construction and panelization, does that, how big is that today? And do you see that helping solve, you know, labor constraint issues, labor supply issues? Um, I know it's a really big question. It's a challenging. Yeah, it it is, and we have a we have a subdivision of our company called the New Home Trends Institute, and we we just did a webinar on this um, with one of the big disruptors called Mighty Buildings, a couple panelized companies that have been doing this a long time, and a production home builder that has their own plant. Um, trusses have already changed the game, so every everybody's doing yeah. trusses, and and that that has made everything more efficient. And Tecra. Um, is taking that to a, a new level, bringing some Europe technology here. Uh, you may or may not have read, Lennar is actually doing two modular, uh, well, one's 3D printed homes in Austin, another is a modular home subdivision in Northern California. Um, to, they're doing it wiser this time. So last, you know, Pulte had tried this and Katera had tried this and blew up, just like blow, make billions of dollars into a big, huge plant and try to do everything in the plant. This is right. more like, okay, now we can do the trusses and now we can do the framing. What can we do next? And it's it's more of an incremental move. Um, and some of the builders are doing it very wisely. They're, uh, they're, they're investing, there's a company called Fifth Wall that invests in a lot of these companies. So instead of them having to do the entire $100 million investment themselves, 
they'll put five million in along with 20 other guys. <laughs> okay. And every everybody's got access to it. They can see what works and what's not working. It seems to be a pretty wise play. All of that said, Alan, I think it's going to be incremental improvements, you know, year by year. It's not going to, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and see, you know, modular homes take over the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would align with that. Great. Well, let's, um, let's also change gears again. I'm going to, uh, we've had some building science guests on before. And one of the questions we like to ask, the industry likes to play around with a little bit is how long should a home last? So I don't know, you know, you and your role, if you've ever thought about that question. So I'm going to ask it because I've asked the other guests, but you know, the, the joke is, well, it ought to at least last as long as the first mortgage, <laughs> at least last 30 years. Have you ever thought about how long should a home last? I'm, I'm going to diss my home builder clients here for a minute. Yep. They'll tell you 10 years because that's after that, they can't get sued. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so as long as the warranty, um, you know, I, I don't know. We're tying into the modular here, something that's very interesting is, and this really answers your question. In Japan, they build everything modular because they don't do any repair and remodeling. Right. They like they they don't re, they don't fix up their house. They just let it deteriorate and then scrape it and then drop in a new one. So they've got more of a view of I think that's more of thirty years. Um, you know, here here I I think it should be long. It it, it is longer than that. Um, yeah. Yeah, you're, I used to have a global role, and yeah, in Japan, I think the value actually after about thirty years, like it goes to zero. The land is worth a lot, obviously, but the the yeah. home like almost depreciates to nothing. Right, and there's no there's no resale market there either. You don't, nobody wants to live in a house that somebody else lived in. You just tear it down and and bring in one of these new ones. <laughs> yeah, right. I I believe some of that's driven by seismic codes too. You don't want to live in a thirty year old house that was designed for the you know three earthquakes ago. You want the one designed for the next earthquake. That's a good point. I, I I like to know who's permitting manufactured homes and where hurricanes exist. That's, that <laughs> that's needs to stop too. <laughs> that's our next podcast. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah, no, we get answers from um, seventy-five to a hundred to one hundred and fifty. It's you know in Europe, as you know, you have very very old some very old buildings, hundreds of years. It's it's an interesting question to think about and ponder. Um, well, I think uh, it's how, at least how, it, how how long are your materials in the house built to last? A long time. Long time. I, I think um, obviously folks, re, you know, reside after 20, 20, 30 years is about the sweet spot for for residing. Yeah. We've done some work there. Um, and then so they tend to rip everything off and yeah. and replace. So, you know, we we have Tyvek that gets pulled off from that. We see it from the 80s and 90s, a different logo and so forth. So what's that? 40, 30, 40 years. Yeah. And that and that's probably the right answer. It gets it all gets remodeled over time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's yeah, it's a fun question to think about. Um, all right. So I think um, you know. I guess w one last question here, and then we'll close. Is is there anything as you look towards the future? Anything that excites you about the market? You know, more than maybe some. Of, you know, in addition to some of the things we've talked about, or maybe call out some of the things we've talked about. What um, what trends or developments that you see that are I, really I really interesting? I think this work from home trend is a game changer. And I think we're gonna to start to see some of the small markets that nobody talks about from a percentage standpoint, have more growth. You know, you, what, the, the Kansas cities of the world, for example, because yeah. you can work from anywhere and, and it's affordable. The other thing, and I'll just leave you with this, is um, 
I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think slowly over time we are going to see enough self-driving cars or at least shared cars uh, where we may not need driveways anymore. And garages truly are for storage, and that's just about it. And I do have a client building a 700-unit apartment complex in Tempe right now. We are not allowed to own a car to live there. Wow, wow. Um, but they have those zip cars on. They're going to have those zip cars on the perimeter. You just go there where you need it. And he has studied this ad nauseum, and he thinks how this is going to play out is that two car families will go to one, uh, and th that'll be the initial sign that that's that's where we're headed, which I I think is going to be fascinating. Yeah, that's a big big change. Do you think folks will? I guess this is the question: Will they use that space, or will they give up that space and just smaller footprint? Will they convert it uh, into livable livable space? Yeah, no, I think that I. Th I think they'll convert the garage into something. And then what's more interesting to me is uh, land use. I mean, you don't need the all the roads. You yeah. don't need a driveway. You don't, um, what, what, are you, what are you gonna use your driveway for? And, and think how beautiful the houses will look without a garage door in front. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I need a driveway to run my snowblower up and down. <laughs> yeah. It's a great question. Yeah, what what would you do if you didn't have a car? Yeah, you'd get rid of the driveway. I guess you put a sidewalk well, you, or something. You wouldn't need a snowblower. <laughs> right, I mean, that's that's true. Right, it's like the, the the homes built. You ask the in you know homes built in Manhattan a hundred plus years ago. They don't have driveways. Your yeah. your front of your house will start looking like that again. True, true. That's fun to think about. Well, cool. Well, John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. you. Gave us some things to think about and really interesting view on the market. Um, with all that, we'll close. So thank you so much for being our guest today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thanks. You guys are a great client too. I, I learned a lot from talking to you. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap. <laughs>